Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. So today I did something that I have not done before, which is, and I guess I guess I have to kind of contextualize, contextualize it a little bit. First of all, welcome back, welcome back from the weekend, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I was looking on my Twitter feed uh, today, and I could see that somebody I knew. I could even say who it is. It's, uh, her name is Sean Lang. She's a gay and lesbian activist, uh, an AIDS activist uh, here in Connecticut, uh, was in a big fight with um, somebody on Twitter. And the person, and I put, I'm going to put quotes around that, the person on Twitter, on Twitter was a real estate agent from Alabama. We're in Connecticut right now. Uh, a real estate agent from Alabama uh, with... Um, about, I think, something like 42 tweets total and, and then 16 followers and then kind of a lot of sort of replies to other people's tweets. And I just jumped on Twitter and I, I wasn't really in the flame war. I, Sean was kind of going back and forth with this person. Uh, the way people do on Twitter was about gun control. I guess I haven't said that part. And, and I just typed, you know, you may be dealing with a troll. You might be dealing with a bot. I don't think I've ever said that before. Uh, by the way, the... <laughs> <laughs> the person in Alabama got really offended by that. I don't know whether she's a bot or, and maybe they teach the bots to be offended. I, I don't know. Either that or some, you know, I wouldn't say perfectly nice, but I, some real estate agent in Alabama was, her distrust of people from the Northeast was even deepened by my assertion that she was a bot. But anyway, there's a reason for that. all that. Obviously, we've been thinking more and more about this over the weekend after Friday's indictment. <clears throat> of uh, 13 Russian players uh, in the world of election destabilization in the United States. At times, the indictment reads like some kind of 2018 recasting of the Americans. I mean, this is we've got Russians uh, on uh, American soil setting up VPNs, which are kind of private um, and, and hard to detect networks that can make emails and things like that look like they're coming from the United States when they're coming from St. Petersburg. Uh, we've got them stealing the identity of dead people, uh, their social security numbers, and using them to set up new bank accounts. We've got them infiltrating rallies. We've even got them paying, in some cases, people to build a cage and, and hire a, an actress to play Hillary Clinton inside a fake jail. So it isn't even all just stuff that's on the cybers, uh, as President Trump would say. It's, it's flesh and blood, and it's feet on the ground. So uh, what's going on here? Uh, is a fairly good question. Uh, joining us now is somebody that we've relied upon very successfully in the past, Susan Glasser, Chief International Affairs Columnist at Politico and host of its weekly podcast, The Global Politico. Susan, uh, welcome back to our show. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I think one of the things that you're really good at, and maybe uh, I was going to sort of wind my way towards it, but maybe let's just start there. So if you back up, if you take five steps back from the Mueller indictments on Friday, you start looking around for a master narrative. And, and so what we know from these indictments is that goal one was to sour, pollute, and destabilize the American political process and to hurt Hillary Clinton as much as possible. Uh, that started in 
2014. And then as things kind of built up, they realized that they had some new pieces on the chessboard to play with, including Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. But um, let's go back to that first idea. Why why would Russia want to destabilize or weaken the typical democratic process in the United States? What would be the kind of master goal there? Well, look, I'm glad you put it uh, in this context. I have to say, uh, you know, left on its own, if we just start talking about 2016, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Mm-hmm. You, know? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're now seeing, as I'm sure Russia is, that the kind of downsides of betting big on Donald Trump. So pull back. Why are they doing this? I think it's important for people to realize that there was a turn really over the last decade when Vladimir Putin has been in power pretty sharply away from integration with the West and this policy of cooperation with the United States. Maybe we weren't always the best of friends, uh, but generally speaking, uh, we had a a fairly solid post-Cold War relationship as Russia has become more assertive as it's gotten its internal act together and as Putin has consolidated power and rebuilt basically an authoritarian state, what he's also done is resurrected a much more uh, confrontational and aggressive foreign policy, both towards the United States and its neighbors. The United States had been, I would say, slow under presidents of both parties, both George W. Bush and Barack Obama, to recognize this shift in Russia's foreign policy and the the new hostility of Vladimir Putin. So what happened to trigger this big intervention in the U.S.? Well, back in 2014, you may remember, is when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And he took over the Crimean Peninsula. That was the first such armed annexation of territory since the end of World War II. Okay, it was a really big deal. Uh, And then he also sent his troops in to destabilize eastern Ukraine, a low-grade civil war that continues to this day. The United States, under President Obama, responded uh, forcefully. Major sanctions were put in place. It was clearly a break in our relationship. And what happened, unbeknownst to us at the time, but the Mueller indictment spells this out very graphically and clearly, it was exactly at this moment that it appears that the Kremlin decided to launch this campaign to destabilize and to intervene in the U.S. elections. Although we have to... That's crucial. Yeah. No, I I do too. And I want to come back to it. Although I just want to put brackets around one thing just just so we're just as circumspect as we can possibly be. What we have for Mueller right now is... Um, actors from, I think, uh, almost entirely, a, entirely, a, a private company uh, that I think is owned by a crony of Putin's, a guy who has uh, become a billionaire and has some kind of catering operation, right? We don't really yet have a Russian government agent, at least not in the Big 13 of Friday, right? Well, just because it's not spelled out in the indictment, I think, uh, you know, what people who have done a lot of reporting on this subject will tell you is that uh, the key figure in this uh, is a Kremlin-linked oligarch, as you pointed out, known as the Kremlin's caterer, right. who uh, there's no way, it's, it's not a private company in the sense that, uh, you know, an American startup in, in New York City is a private company. This this. The Kremlin's caterer does not have his own foreign policy, right? So this is uh, clearly a Russian intelligence operation. What we don't know uh, is, and by the way, many of the individuals 
uh, named in this are connected uh, and have explicit connections with Russian intelligence. What we don't know, uh, and it's not yet spelled out for us and may never be spelled out for us publicly, is uh, to what degree was Vladimir Putin himself consulted on this, how directly was the lines of uh, oversight and control that went back to the Kremlin on this. Uh, it, it, it is quite clear that this is a Kremlin-linked operation, a Russian intelligence-linked operation. What, what's still vague, I would say, is the degree of actual command and control exercised by Vladimir Putin. So what's the right metaphor or analogy or language to talk about this overall strategy, the strategy that pops up in 2014? In other words, I think for a lot of people, this story has been kind of a low hum, you know, that there's some sense that maybe something happened on Twitter or Facebook and maybe they saw and made the word fake news phrase, fake news might pop up and things like that. But for a lot of people, including people who, because they were focused on Florida and Parkland over the last four or five days, didn't really necessarily focus that much on the indictments. I mean, what you know, there are terms like an invasion or an attack or, uh, or or something like that. And, and I don't know if those are quite right. What you've chosen is to, to call it kind of a second Cold War. Well, that, you know, among uh, many Russia specialists, uh, that is the view increasingly these days, is that, in effect, we have moved from a sort of frenemy situation into something uh, much more frigid, uh, call it a new Cold War or not. There's a debate over that terminology and whether that makes light of the original Cold War, but I think it at least should signify to people, and by the way, it's not just the Russian election uh, intervention in the U.S., it's, it's a whole host of issues that have led to uh, really this break between the United States and Russia over the last decade, and uh, it's now enshrined even in uh, uh, doctrine. Uh, you have the new national security strategy and the national defense strategy by Jim Mattis, President Trump's Secretary of Defense, basically saying that we're turning, in effect, away from the counterterrorism of the post-9-11 era and refocusing uh, our defense strategy on countering threats from great powers like Russia and China. But on the election intervention, first of all, I would recommend to all of your listeners, read the indictment. Yeah. It's actually, it's available online. It's a very clearly written, not at all in legalese, step-by-step walks you through, in effect, how to run and launch a political influence operation using widely available you know, tools of social media invented by the United States itself, and that the Russians, in effect, were just careful students of the platforms that we ourselves built and figured out how to use it to influence and uh, sow division inside our democracy, to play on divisions that are already here, of course. Right. It's actually what prosecutors call a speaking indictment, which is to say that it it, it, it functions partially as a report, too, uh, which is, I think, important because Mueller, there are some constraints on how much reporting at the, at the end of all this Mueller can actually do to the public. Uh, and I, I think he's using these indictments to kind of tell a, a story. I want to go back to what you were saying before, because I think this is important and it's getting lost. So uh, you mentioned the national security strategy. Uh, that's H.R. Uh, McMaster. Uh, McMaster's in Munich. Over the weekend, he uses the term incontrovertible because we have incontrovertible uh, evidence now because of these indictments that the Russians are have been active on our soil uh, in in cyberspace, uh, attempting to mess with us in a whole range of ways. 
that's tied, I think, very much to his national security strategy, right? Well, absolutely. And I, I think the McMaster thing is a good example, too, though, of uh, the problem that, of course, we all have in uh, trying to figure out not only what happened uh, with the Russian intervention, but what is the U.S. policy right now. So McMaster has been generally quite hawkish on Russia, very critical uh, and firm in his rhetoric about their intervention in Ukraine and in the election intervention. He's never wavered in his public statements. However, of course, he has a boss, Donald Trump, who not only doesn't seem to agree with McMaster, but as soon as he gave that speech in Munich, President Trump immediately publicly chastised him uh, as part of his remarkable tweet storm over the weekend, uh, calling into question, once again, the Russia investigation and seeking to de deflect blame for it, uh, as he continues to do today, by the way. Uh, right before our conversation, President Trump has been tweeting once again this morning and saying, well, it's Obama's fault. They didn't uh, do anything to respond to the Russian intervention, which, again, you know, America actually is capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time, right? Uh, it, it may well be, and I think there is a legitimate uh, question about the Obama administration's response and did they take this seriously enough soon enough. But frankly, given the sort of house on fire situation of more than a year having gone by with President Trump not refusing to acknowledge it, never mind actually take measures to respond to it, it seems like uh, a pretty ironic critique on his part. Right. So yeah, we're in a really weird position right now because people like Madison McMaster uh, understand that we are in some kind of fairly aggressive uh, we're receiving a, a lot of aggressive action from Russia that's tied probably to their uh, plans for for how Russia as a nation state is going to behave uh, around its neighbors. Um, and so you've got a security establishment and a military establishment that's kind of trying to get ready for this. You've got a president who who because. I guess particularly because his ego is very invested in the question of whether he won the election fair or square and because his his attitude towards Putin is qualitatively different from almost anybody else's, uh, any of the people, the military or intelligence people that he bosses, right? I mean, you just got, you've got a president who's, who couldn't be more out of step when, with all the people that we just talked about. Well, that's exactly right. And again, what has been really an interesting dynamic is how how fundamentally schizophrenic the policy that's resulted has been on the one hand uh, taking individual actions uh, that uh, uh, really I would say politicians of both parties can agree with right you know so you have uh, we've increased US troops both over the end of the Obama administration and the Trump administration in Eastern Europe uh, along with our NATO allies uh, they uh, President Trump has authorized the sale of some uh, lethal weapons to Ukrainians which was something that the Obama administration fought over but didn't agree upon uh, you know there are the tough sanctions uh, because of the takeover of Crimea remain in effect so on the one hand you have sort of the policy actions on the other hand you have not only President Trump's tweets and his public statements uh, but also a clear sense uh, that uh, you know not only is the U.S. not leading on this, uh, but has refused to take action here inside the United States uh, to do anything to uh, harden our defenses, if you will, against uh, uh, Russia or to even uh, 
reframe the conversation to reflect these new realities on the ground. And so it's really this bifurcated policy. And I've, I've watched top Trump officials in a room full of skeptical kind of Washington foreign policy elites make the case, well, we have a great Russia policy. We've been very tough on Russia. And it almost it's the willful suspension of disbelief when it comes to having a president who is a public admirer of Vladimir Putin to this day. Right. And and so, I mean, we're sort of at a weird juncture right now where it, a, a number of things would make sense. I mean, I, I think if we were in, a, in anything resembling normal circumstances, probably the president, I mean, presidents can often be very good explainers. You know, I think about Ronald Reagan explaining uh, somewhat fallaciously, I think, why Nicaragua was really, really important. Uh, but, you know, coming on television and, and just sort of saying, here's what's going on. Here's what we need to do about it. Uh, so you've got a president who can't address the nation about that. I mean, we we have some pretty major concerns here uh, that manifest themselves in the in the pages of that indictment and and to come. I mean, we don't we don't know what other shoes uh, could could be about to drop here. Uh, we are heading into an election cycle where it's not clear that our actual election vote counting apparatus uh, is is safe from hacking. Uh, I don't know. There just seems to be this wide range of things that you would kind of expect there to be some hardened off national policy about it. And it, it appears we're not going to get one, right? You can't McMaster and, and Mattis and all those people, they can't create a policy that the president doesn't want or believe in. Well, that's right. I think uh, we're not going to get one. And when people talk about their concern about the absence of American leadership, this is a very good example. Uh, the kind of vacuum that results when nobody knows who really speaks for the United States or what is its policy. Is its policy uh, that which the president tweets? Is its policy the actions taken by his subordinates, possibly without his support? And so uh, it, that suggest that there will be a, a period, a long period of uncertainty in the world about where the United States really stands. And so that the messaging of any individual policy action will be, of course, uh, much less than it might be if we were speaking and acting with one voice. And uh, that has left, of course, our allies in Europe who are much closer to Russia and much more dependent, for example, economically on Russian oil and gas, uh, very concerned about uh, what are the longer-term messaging to Vladimir Putin, who, by the way, is facing a uh, Potemkin re-election in, in mid-March uh, for another six-year term. Everyone expects him, of course, to win that since the system is rigged against him and he's barred his only significant challenger from running against him, uh, the activist Alexei Navalny. So what is that going to mean? for uh, the future, not only of U.S.-Russian relations, but will, will Putin come out of that emboldened? Will he be more aggressive? We don't really know. It, it seems, you know, reading your work, Susan, it, I, I start thinking maybe we have been looking maybe too much at the kind of almost reality show aspects of how the Mueller investigation might play out within the Trump administration. I think a lot of the questions that we have is, wow, is Jared going to get in trouble? What's going to happen to Don Jr. about that tower meeting? You know, stuff like that. Um, and those aren't insignificant questions at all. I don't mean to suggest that they are. But we're kind of focusing on that. And that's our, to use one of your colleagues at Politico's terms, terms that that's our something burger right now. That, you know, there's something that went on. It seems to involve, it may involve people like Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner and Donald Trump Jr. and stuff like that. And and what you're pointing to is kind of a bigger 
a, a bigger burger than the something burger, which is we don't have a policy about a nation that has really, really hostile and destructive intentions towards us. Well, look, I'm glad you, you brought it up and put it in that bigger context, because I will say I had a conversation this week with Ash Carter, who was the Secretary of Defense for uh, uh, President Obama, one of the leading hawks on Russia inside the Obama administration, pushing for more action. And, you know, I, I think he was a reminder that there's a much bigger context. I think it is a very big deal, obviously, uh, for us to understand how far inside the Trump circle these connections, possibly inappropriate with Russia, uh, extend. You already have the guilty plea from uh, President Trump's first national security advisor, Mike Flynn. So, you know, this is a very significant investigation, but you're right that that's only one subset. The bigger picture context is we are looking, as, as Carter said in this very interesting interview that we did this week for the Global Politico, uh, you know, we are looking at a period when Russia is going to be a real adversary of the United States for at least as long as Vladimir Putin is president. And given that there's no prospect of Vladimir Putin uh, leaving the Russian presidency anytime in the near future, he's just become actually the longest serving Russian leader since Stalin. He actually has now outpaced the amount of time that landed Brezhnev was in power, right? So there's no prospect of an end to the Putin era. We're looking at this adversarial relationship, which has consequences for the United States and its key allies in Europe, uh, and really all over the world. And that basically is absent from the conversation. Right. And, and I think, you know, I mean, another part of this is that Russia has, in this particular case, in terms of the activities covered by the indictment, uh, been able to exploit two things that, that they didn't create. One of them is that we have a very open system here, and it's an open system that allows a lot of people to move around uh, freely and move information around freely and, and become effectively publishers of their own ideas on both Facebook and Twitter. Every time you tweet, you're essentially publishing. Um, and, and nobody really wants that to change very much. We want to have a really open system, but we are, now we're seeing how foreign actors can take advantage of it. And then the other part of this is, and, and there's been some really interesting uh, research on this, a guy named Jonathan Albright, I think at Columbia, uh, looked at this, that, that the other thing that they walked into was a, a bonfire that was already burning, a, a, a nation that was pretty divided, uh, was given to an awful lot of heated rhetoric, both at uh, on social media and, and then as the Trump campaign got going at rallies and stuff like that, that they didn't have to build a bonfire. They just had to keep putting logs on it, right? That there's, there's a way in which they, they took something that was already happening and just did their best to make it worse. Well, that's right. I'm glad that you made that point, because look, let's be real, right? The Russians didn't create these divisions in American society. They would exist uh, regardless. Uh, the America that voted uh, between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney in 2012 was divided almost exactly along the same lines as the America that voted between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in 2016. Now, the rhetoric of politics, of course, has become much, much worse. Uh, and uh, what we've seen is that actually our divisions are almost cartoonishly easy for a bunch of Russians who don't really understand American society, uh, both to parody and to, to play upon, right? And that should cause us to have some serious introspection. I can even imagine that, that it, it, this campaign did affect votes. It was uh, very loud and quite skillful in terms of, I think, its uh, ability to uh, squeeze the, um, uh, the vulnerable margins, if you will, of our political debate. But I, I think you're right that it's not that they created some 
division that wasn't there. Uh, it, this is us. And this was something that Russians did even in the Cold War. You know, this was a constant theme, uh, harping on, for example, the racism of American society was, was right out of the Soviet playbook. But I think uh, what we've never had before is a president of the United States who has been openly admiring of Russia's authoritarian leader, who has appeared to cheer on uh, the encouragement of divisiveness in American society, whether it comes from Russian trolls or, by the way, uh, from Americans themselves. Uh, and, and this is something, the fusion between, uh, you know, a right-wing populist anger that Donald Trump has channeled and uh, the political agenda of uh, an adversarial foreign power, that's just something we've never seen. Yeah, I can't remember whether Ronald Reagan is the person who said uh, politics stops at the water's edge. But there's been this sort of this notion here in the United States that uh, if you're a Republican president, you might have some problems with the Democratic leadership in Congress. But your fondness for a foreign leader <laughs> wouldn't outstrip. Uh, I mean, you'd, you'd still have more loyalty to the Democratic minority leaders than than you would to some foreign leader. But it's pretty clear that Donald Trump likes Putin uh, better than he likes uh, Chuck Schumer. Uh, and that should worry us a little bit. Well, it's not, you know, on some level, right, who cares who he likes? Uh, you know, the bottom line is that he has uh, appeared to operate in ways that place his personal interest over the national interest, which is why, you know, there's really a consensus uh, in both political parties, Republican and Democrat, uh, about many issues that comes to how to deal uh, with Russia right now. And the president of the United States just doesn't happen to share that consensus among leaders in, in both parties. And he does right now look at this remarkable series of tweets that he issued from uh, Palm Beach over the weekend. They really, more than anything, because they're quite inconsistent in what they say, but to me the, the takeaway is that it's really a president who has, has placed his personal concerns, neuroses even, uh, and worries about the Russia investigation far over the substance of what it means for the country. All right, we're going to stop it there, so we'll have time to talk about the other story that kind of dominated news and conversation over the weekend. That, of course, is Parkland, Florida. We are very grateful, once again, to Susan Glasser, a Chief International Affairs Columnist at Politico and host of its weekly podcast, Global Politico. As I say, what we have coming up here uh, is uh, our friend Phil Bump from the uh, Washington Post to talk a little bit about Parkland. Uh, but before we uh, go to him, we also want to say today's show is produced by Bots from Russia. Please to hate one another. Betsy Bot Kaplan and Kion Wolfbot are producing this show. Amanda Fish is Salmon Bot. Locks her up. Garrett McLaughlin. What kind of name for a bot is that? The part of Bill Curry is being played by Boris Badenov. Tomorrow's show is Jokes Necessary. Jokes. In Russia, they take your wife. Please. Now, nice break. Then more show. funded by the NRA telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this. We call BS. We say that tough, they say that tougher gun laws do not decrease gun violence. We call BS. They say a good guy with a gun stops a bad guy with a gun. We call BS. They say guns are just tools like knives and are as dangerous as cars. We call BS. No they say that no laws could have been able to prevent the hundreds of senseless tragedies that have occurred. We call BS! That 
us kids don't know what we're talking about, that we're too young to understand how the government works. We call BS. Uh, that was Emma Gonzalez, uh, 18 years old. Uh, by now, you know her probably if you own a television set and had it on this weekend. Uh, she is one of the students from Parkland, Florida, uh, who took to the cameras and took to the podiums uh, and uh, told uh, their own story and told uh, t- talked of their own concerns uh, in this time of gun violence. Um, joining us now is Philip Bump. He's been with us before, national correspondent for The Washington Post. Welcome back to our show, Philip Bump. Thank you, sir. Um, so there's, you know, there's kind of a familiar, worn down kabuki that we're accustomed to after school shootings. It's a horrible thing to say that we could ever get accustomed to anything uh, about school shootings, but we've had enough of them. So we kind of know how it typically plays out. There's the famous thoughts and prayers uh, thing that, that comes from people who don't want to talk uh, about gun control. There's a little debate that goes on about whether we should be putting money into mental health or doing gun control. You, you have po- politicians like uh, like Chris Murphy, who was very radicalized by Newtown, uh, berating his colleagues. All those things typically happen, and then nothing happens. That's the other thing that we know. Something different is going on. It feels that way, anyway, uh, at the end of this weekend. What's different about this? Right. Yeah, I mean, the the, the feels this way uh, caveat is an important one. But I think what's different here is that we have, for the first time, really, after one of these school shootings, uh, a, a cadre of folks who are stepping forward in, in their own voices, survivors of this attack, stepping forward in their own voices and articulating what it is that happened and how they view it. Uh, and there have been a lot of reasons in the past that we, we haven't seen this, uh, including, for example, that after the massacre in Newtown in 2012, we're talking about elementary school students, uh, you know, the small children who obviously uh, couldn't speak for themselves. Uh, but this group, these high school students, there are a lot of factors, I think, which contribute to them speaking out. One is that they, uh, part of the intransigence that we've seen on gun control is because those of us who, are, who predate Columbine still see these as anomalous, see them as, wow, this is another crazy thing that happened, and I can't believe this happened, and, and this is, you know, we need, to, we need to figure out what we're doing here, but what's going on with these school shootings, whereas they grew up in a world. They grew up after Columbine. They grew up in a world where these sorts of killings were the norm to the extent that they get trained on it in their schools. And so they see this not as, what's going on with these, ano- these weird anomalies that we have to figure out a solution to? They see this as an entrenched problem that, that demands some sort of solution, which I think is different. And I think it changed. Plus, they grew up in a world where social media exists, and they know that one person can have a loud voice on social media, and they're, they're using that voice. Right. In some ways, it's kind of counterintuitive what's happened, because in a way, these kids, because as you say, they are, they people call them the school, school shooting generation. They grew up with these lockdowns and tests and stuff like that, and they grew up with this steady drumbeat. They, of all people, might be the ones least likely to object to this as an anomaly. It's not an anomaly for them. But, but there's also some way in which I, I guess the kind of witness that they're bearing right now is— is something that you can't as easily argue back against. Uh, although why that would be more potent than these bereaved parents from from Sandy Hook, Connecticut, who went to Congress and walked through the halls of Congress and were kind of just blown off uh, as they sought some kind of relief. Uh, it, it's hard to say. Is it just it, it, these kids seem very media savvy? They seem to be very good at, at some of them anyway at using what's available to them. Yeah, I'm not sure that that's entirely a function of their own deliberateness, right? I mean, the the speech that you just played an excerpt of, for example, was widely broadcast on cable news because it was an an important news story, but it was a young woman who 
were there not news cameras there, would have just given a speech to a crowd of people anyway, right? So some of this is a, is a function of circumstance. But it certainly is the case that immediately afterward, there were a lot of calls on social media in particular criticizing the politics behind inaction on gun control, criticizing President Trump, criticizing Senator Marco Rubio in Florida, uh, that, that they, are, they very much recognize uh, that this is a moment in which they have a voice that can be heard. And I think it's important to remember, too, that they, they are living right now you know, if you were 16 years old, President Trump has been the president of the country you grew up in for one sixteenth of your life. I mean, this is they have lived in the Trump era as a much more substantial part of their lives than we have, and they have seen the way that Trump handles media. They have seen the way in which politics is now driven by social media, driven by these sort of one-off thoughts of one individual, which I think can reshape how you think about the effect that you can have on government when you see that one person can have the kind of effect that President Trump has. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, that maybe one of their great teachers has been a President Trump, and they kind of turned some of his own weapons back against him. And, and I think also there's something very genuine about their outrage, particularly to whatever degree President Trump tried to make this political, not even in the standard political way, right? We know how that goes. We've watched that for decades now, uh, where there is uh, a push for gun control from mostly from Democrats and a push against it uh, mostly from Republicans. Th- that wasn't this. This was Donald Trump trying to link this in an invidious way to the FBI's handling uh, of the Russia uh, investigation. I mean, he kind of tried to use it to, to make a point about a completely unrelated uh, topic that's of very venal concern to him. Yeah, that's true. I mean, quite frankly, beyond for, for an outside observer, I think that that Trump's uh, linking those two things was fairly grotesque and, and undeserved and, and, and a, a bad move for a wide variety of reasons. But I also think it's ancillary to what, we're, what the, the discussion is that's happening around gun control right now, which is that there are these young people. These are the people who were shot at, right? I mean, granted, I don't know how many of them were literally dodging bullets on that day, but they were all in harm's way last week. And when you have parents speaking out on behalf of their kids, when you have other folks stepping up and saying this can't happen to these people, that is very different. It is, and I, you know, I, I'm hesitant to draw this analogy simply because I understand how it can be taken, but it is the difference between saying that you support the military and being a veteran to some extent, right? That, that, that these are people who were literally in the line of fire, potentially, whose lives were at risk. And I think that changes the, the, the resonance of their words simply by virtue of the position that they had been in. You know, Phil, at the beginning of this conversation, I said, well, it feels different. And you said it was correct to highlight that part of this, that it feels different. It feels as though uh, the worm might be turning a little bit. Um, it, you know, when the lights turn off and the cameras go pull back a little bit, uh, you know, you've got I mean, there's a post ABC poll today that actually startlingly says that support for banning assault weapons has dropped significantly among Republicans. It's down to 29 percent uh, among Republicans. Republicans, uh, uh, a big drop since uh, one other benchmark in 1999 when this was looked at, which is sort of amazing that assault weapon bans are less popular uh, on the right uh, and, 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 a, and a more partisan issue, too, at this point. Seventy-one uh, percent of Democrats support that kind of ban. So, so you sort of wonder, like, if, if these kids go away, I know they're going to have a march and stuff, we can talk about that, but if these kids go away, do we just get back to politics as usual? Well, I think it's not only if the kids go away, but once their message has been heard and doesn't seem as 
novel as it does right now, right? I mean, this is, again, sad to say, but, you know, once someone has been saying the same thing for an extended period of time, I mean, you know, former Representative Gabby Giffords, right? Her her story was incredibly powerful, but now she is just sort of swept away as being, oh, here's another <laughs> gun rights or gun control advocate, you know, forgetting the fact that, of course, she, she got shot in the head and survived and was a sitting member of Congress, which is sort of amazing that she now is just sort of, oh, here's another gun control person. I feel like that's where these uh, kids may end up if, you know, by being positioned in that way. Uh, but I think it's important to remember, and one of the things that we see consistently after these shootings is critique of the National Rifle Association's contributions to politicians. And you heard some of that in the speech from the, the excerpt that you played. And I think that that misunderstands fundamentally the politics of gun control. And what has happened, along with a lot of other issues like climate change, for example, is that it's become a very, very polarizing partisan issue. And it is less about gun ownership to a large extent than it is about party identity and, and, and partisanship. And I think that that alone explains the poll results that, that you just saw. And obviously, a lot of that was driven by the NRA's activity and the NRA's outreach. But it is now a partisan issue. And so that is, you know, that, that is a... Uh, uh, schism that exists within the United States that is incredibly broad. No one has shown any ability to bridge it, and it makes it harder for Republicans, even Republicans who want to take action on guns, recognize that their own base, the base that needs to vote for them in primaries, doesn't support them doing so. And from a political standpoint, that's problematic. Yeah, we saw that here in Connecticut over the weekend. Uh, we've got a pretty crowded uh, gubernatorial field on both sides. One of the Republican candidates, a, a doctor actually, uh, Prasad Srinivasan, uh, said uh, over the weekend that if he, he's also a state legislator, we have a pretty uh, tough gun law post-Newtown, which he voted in favor of. He said if it came up again, he wouldn't vote in favor of it. He'd vote against this. He, he's saying this in the weekend of Parkland, which I thought was kind of astonishing and tenured. And then I thought a little bit more about the thing that you're saying right now, Phil, which is that he's trying to stand out in a Republican primary, and maybe even the fact that he's a doctor, the AMA has a very, very strong position uh, about the gun violence crisis. Uh, So in order to stand out and in order to talk to that Republican base, that is one of the ways that you talk to the Republican base these days, right? That's exactly right. And not only that, but uh, research has shown that the people who are uh, most fervently opposed to new gun control measures are also the ones that are the most vocal and active. Uh, and so that means that if you're looking at an electorate uh, for a primary, and not to get too sort of in the dirt here on this, but the primary for or the electorate for a primary tends to be more partisan. Uh, those are the people that bother to come out and vote. And those more partisan Republicans are the people who less want to see new gun control measures. Uh, and so that is a challenge. If you are a Republican legislator who's trying to win an election, that is legitimately a challenge. You've got to win those people's votes. Uh, and it's tough to take a hard line on gun control and do that. Well, we'll be watching in the weeks ahead. Obviously, uh, there are some big dates coming up. I think March 24th is one of the next ones. That would be the March for Life date. Uh, We'll see how much momentum uh, this new version of the gun control movement can uh, can sustain. But uh, uh, and we'll see what kind of impact that has on primaries and elections. But that we were very lucky today to have Philip Bump, national correspondent for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Okay, when we get back, because we feel as though, you know, when we come back from the weekend, obviously there's a lot of kind of hard stuff to think about, and nothing could be harder than what we had to think about this weekend, Uh, Russian espionage activities uh, on our soil trying to disrupt our elections, perhaps succeeding in disrupting our elections, and then the horror, the horror that was uh, Parkland, Florida. 
So we're going to try to cheer you up a little bit at the end. And we're going to explore a question that we've talked a lot about on on the Colin McEnroe show. And that is the disparity between what critics think about something, some piece of popular culture, and what users of popular culture think about it. We're going to pick a particular piece of popular culture uh, to have that conversation about. So this is something that we do think about uh, and talk about uh, on this show. Usually not on Mondays, though. Usually probably more likely on Fridays. But uh, as uh, keen observers of popular culture, which we try to be, <laughs> um, one of the questions always has to do with, you know, when something's a critical darling but not necessarily appreciated by the general public, what does that mean? And what does the reverse mean, too? Uh, what happens when critics kind of wrinkle their noses uh, at uh, something and then people love it? And, and in some ways... You know, there's there are lots of kind of latent default explanations uh, about this. I mean, probably the most common one, of course, is the Minkin thing. Nobody ever went broke uh, underestimating the bad taste of the American public. So you could look at it that way or you could say, wow, maybe there are things that the intelligentsia, that the critical critical intelligentsia just doesn't get or misses. Uh, to her credit, uh, Stephanie Goodman, film editor for The New York Times, uh, decided to explore this question. Uh, and in particular, she decided to explore it in connection with the movie The Greatest Showman, which is kind of a local story about P.T. Barnum. It stars Hugh Jackman. Uh, it opened, I think, something like December 10th. And Stephanie Goodman, one thing we can say is you can still see this movie on a first-run theater. Uh, it doesn't have it's not being kept there because of Oscar buzz or Oscar curiosity because it isn't really a big part of the Oscar conversation. Stephanie, we could at least say something's happening here, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, um, our our headline kind of captured it for our box office story. Um, people are going to disrespected films. <laughs> <laughs> so... So, well, let's talk a little bit more about that. So it might not be a big surprise if this were kind of a, a shoot 'em up film or a really conventionally weepy Nicholas Sparks adaptation rom-com. I mean, there's certain movies which critics are not going to like, but we know that, you know, that pe people are going to probably go see. This isn't really in that category, right? This is, a, yeah, this is a movie that went for a different set of sensibilities, but not necessarily sensibilities that critics like. Right, right, exactly. I mean, it's um, music that's sort of uh, very popular, but sort of middle of the road. Um, not the, the story is fairly black and white, not, not a lot of grays, uh, and it's also not very accurate. So there's a lot of things for critics not to like. All right. Speaking of music, let's play um, Wolfie. Let's play C two first. Uh, this is um, uh, you're going to hear a group of outcasts uh, in song, uh, championing the, championing their own uniqueness in, in the song. This is me. I am not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I'm learning to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say, no one will love you as you are. But I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there's a place for us, for we are glorious. When the sharpest words want to cut me down, I'm going to send the blood, going to drown them out. I am brave. I 
So uh, Jason Zinneman from the New York Times uh, called the movie a montage sequence that occasionally turns into a musical. Uh, Rob Harvilla from The Ringer said the soundtrack soundtrack is, quote, populist to a fault. Every song, a Voltron-esque evocation of various current pop and rock stars. Um, So, Stephanie, you decided to ask people who really did like this movie, including, as it turned out, one person who'd seen it 20 times. Yeah, I I was astounded by how many people. I mean, I, I... Picked out a selection for a follow-up story of quotes, but there there were so many people who had seen it two or three times, eight times, ten times. I mean, I, I was really struck by that. Do you have any sort of master theory about why that would be? Um, sort of. I, I do think it's the communal experience, and when you go back, you're experiencing it with people again. I think the experience of seeing it is is not to be discounted. Um, that you're are surrounded by people who are all enjoying it, and uh, it's kind of like everybody has the same opinion. It's not that divisive feeling in the country right now. Right. And yes, I, I want to stop on that one, too. That this is, I mean, in a way that obviously an action movie can't be, this is a movie that attempts to make you feel good about certain things. And, and as you say, if you can plow that set of feelings into the communal experience of all watching it together and having a good time, you've really got something. Right, right. And also, it's very much about, um, as you pointed out, they're, they're outcast singing. But I think every person who goes to see this film, it feels like an outsider in some way, maybe minor, or maybe it's the main thing. I, we, we got letters from uh, a woman who was uh, a lesbian Jew married to a Muslim. Um, and so, you know, like, like she definitely feels like an outsider in her community, she, she wrote. And I think that there's a lot to relate to there. Right. And so, you know, I mean, I I worked at a newspaper for the first 20 years of my career uh, where we had a very, very fine film critic and where the managing editor would occasionally stop by our offices in the back of the building uh, and refer to the film critic as the guy who didn't like Benji. Uh, Benji being this incredibly popular dog movie at the time, you know, and that's who the film critic was to the managing editor. Was the guy who's so out of touch with the average person that he actually wrote a scathing review of a Benji movie. How could you possibly be such a horrible? You should pardon the expression bastard. Um, and, and, you know, so that's a common conversation around newspapers, right? That the, the critical establishment doesn't really necessarily think what the masses think. And that's fine. Why is this different? Is, is there something a little bit different about the, the chasm that you've been exploring around this movie? Um, I, I definitely think the basic appeal is like it basically does not appeal to a critic. Something that's a, a feel good movie about circuses, which are traditional like normally stories about a circus in fiction might be very dark and this is very upbeat and i don't think that appeals to critics at all um and i don't think viewers like the average moviegoer cares about that I think I'm also wondering, you know, the average moviegoer, the kind of moviegoer who's probably going to this movie a lot, probably doesn't get to Broadway all that often uh, and and doesn't probably if he gets he or she gets to Broadway, doesn't like the music of Stephen Sondheim uh, and might not even be terribly aware of Hamilton. Um, And there's a way in which the the uh, the music that's being critiqued 
by the guy from The Ringer. It, it in fact, is music that people like and recognize. They maybe don't see a whole lot of musicals. If they did see a Sondheim musical, they wouldn't like it. Uh, but it sort of puts people in touch also with that form, right, the musical form, which, you know, is this fundamentally, almost primevally American uh, form. I'm wondering if that's also, you know, people in some ways really like a musical if they like the music. And I think that's a really good point. But and also your Hamilton comparison. I mean, there are you know hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the country who love the music to Hamilton but have never seen it. And that's another point about The Greatest Showman. You can see videos for all the songs online, and you don't have to actually go to the movie cold. A lot of people know the lyrics and everything before they see the movie. And I think that that's a, another part of it. It's, it's almost all we're already familiar when they go. I think the other thing that maybe we should acknowledge here is if you ask the average person who kind of watches the entertainment industry to rattle off, off the top three or four male stars, uh, in, you know, in, in movies these days, they might not say the name Hugh Jackman first. Hugh Jackman is a guy who kind of crosses back and forth, does a lot of stage work, hosts the Tonys, uh, hasn't, other than being Wolverine, he hasn't really been necessarily been associated with gigantic projects. But it would be a mistake. This will be the last time anybody underestimates Hugh Jackman, I assume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, in the in the comments uh, in my article and on, on Facebook, there was a ton of love for Hugh Jackman. People really appreciate his work ethic, um, his talent, uh, his body. <laughs> um, I mean, there. I think that um, uh, critics and maybe even Hollywood don't really get that. Um, well, they'll get it now. Uh, and first of all, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today, uh, Stephanie Goodman. And also, thanks for doing what you did. I thought it was a really interesting thing. I think newspapers should maybe do stuff like this. Uh, and all of us in the media should do it more often, figure out what are we missing? Yeah. What, what did we not get? Uh, Stephanie Goodman is film editor for The New York Times. Uh, you are a wonderful listening audience. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, this was The Scramble, which when we put together three stories we think are important or likable from the weekend, we'll be back tomorrow with another show. Thanks for listening to this one. <laughs>